0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Kansas City-based entrepreneur and bar owner Jill Coxon previously joined us to cover the scofflaw in episode 14. But she returns today to lead a very different discussion, one that's unlike any other we've had before on Cocktail College. Sure, we'll explore the best practices for how to properly treat guests, and all the things that immediately spring to mind when thinking about that very large umbrella that is hospitality. We're also going to pick apart and dissect so much more. Thanks to Jill's expertise and, frankly, her being one of the leading thinkers in this field, we'll consider the etymology of the word and look at bar spaces, bartenders, owners and operators, guests, and the countless ways in which they're interconnected. We'll rip off the band-aid, exploring mistakes of the past, as well as the steps we can and should collectively take to shift the perception of bartending from vocation to profession. I'm not going to lie, listener, I was inspired by today's conversation and I'm excited to put it out there into the world. And I'm keen to hear your thoughts too, if you want to send them over to podcasts at vinepair.com. And then hey, don't feel shy about leaving a rating or review. It's everything you need to know about hospitality and more. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Jill Coxon. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you, you know, back on the show. We previously had you on to talk about the scofflaw, a sleeper hit of a cocktail right there, if ever I tasted one. Um and during that episode, as well as in subsequent conversations we've had together, we touched upon the topic of today's episode. It's literally the name of the game. It's a mindset. The industry we love, occasionally love to loathe, it's hospitality. Jill, tell me here in a nutshell, what does the idea of hospitality mean to you?
1: You know, it's something I actually think about every day, um, and I think it evolves with me. Um, you know i we we always talk a lot about service versus hospitality. I definitely believe that hospitality gives you more control. in fact, it gives you an obligation to take more control over your space. you know if you look at the etymology of the word it's it's the same uh, root word as you know hospital and hospice and it's about treating strangers as if they were your friends. It's about inviting them into your home but you don't have to be servile toward them. Um, it allows you to still maintain control as a host, you know, same same root word, host, hospitality. Um, welcome to my home. I wanna make sure you have a great time, but um, th- there are some codes of conduct that we expect from our guests as well. Um, we're gonna maintain those standards so that everybody has a great time, just like you would in your home, in your living room, you know, the, the standards you would hold your friends to in your home space.
0: That's wonderful. And, you know, there's a couple of things already you're bringing up there that I really want to make, you know, threads that I want to pull out a little bit more. Um, you talked about this idea of, you know, welcoming someone into your space as if it were your home. Um Let's start, though, with some of maybe the overlooked or underappreciated aspects of hospitality, because I think that one that you mentioned up top there kind of does go without saying, although there's there's certain aspects of it that maybe people don't realize from the beginning. But you also have these really incredible videos that you put out on your Instagram yourself. And it's kind of uh, forgive me if I'm uh, if I'm naming this wrong, but it's basically like Hospitality 101. Exactly. Yeah, and I've been following along with those, and I'll be honest with you, oftentimes there's topics on there that I just generally had never considered before. So, yeah, can you tell us some of those maybe overlooked and underappreciated aspects of today's topic?
1: Mm, Man, there's a... So, I think the opposite, the full spectrum, you know, you have service, you have hospitality somewhere in the middle, um, and then you have theatre, you know, it's kind of where I spend some time thinking these days, you know, where do you cross the line of hospitality into theater. And I think the difference between, you know, like the, 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 hospitality being, I guess the fulcrum or the, you know, the synthesis of those two things where you're concerned about the guest experience that should be front and center um, of hospitality. Whereas, you know, service, you know, you're maybe letting the guests run you over and theater, you're irreverent of the guest experience. You're like, Hey, this is about us. It's the show we're putting on. You're here to see me. Um, And I think hospitality sits in that middle ground Um, and it can be easy to lose control of it in either direction. Um, And I think it's really important for us, you know, to, to stay in that middle ground, to, uh, to be there for the guest, you know, how do you simultaneously be there for the guest, but hold the guest accountable to a certain, um, you know, uh, uh, conduct. Um, I think that's where the magic happens because it's going to be slightly different for every guest, you know, being able to Respond in real time. Read a guest for what they want to get out of an experience. You know, if a if a guest is really excited about spirits and you have that knowledge and you can share impart that in a in a, a way that just meets what they're looking for, as opposed to just blowing past the guest cues and you know going on and on you know, ad nauseum about the history of you know mezcal or whiskey when they're not there for that. You know, it's it's easy that that's when it becomes theater. You know, it's like oh, I, I made this about me in this moment, and so. Constantly recalibrating, you know yourself to the guest experience in front of you, so that they are getting exactly what they want. Um, to me, is 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 really the art of hospitality. Mm-hmm. And as
0: you're speaking there, I, I, in my mind, I have this kind of idea swirling around my head of maybe hospitality begins at home. Just to bring in some of the earlier points you made there, to what extent does this begin with as a bar? operator yourself and a person who's led bar teams for a long time to what extent does that encompass the way you first of all treat your own staff members your you know your team your family there and and whatever bar it is like to what extent does hospitality begin there before we're even thinking about the guests and the people that will cross those doors on any given night
1: sure sure and and i i say a lot that Hospitality is, is a conduit, you know, from ownership um, down to to the guest. And I can never ex- expect my, or our staffs, I should say, to treat guests with any more hospitality than we actively strive to show them, you know, every day. So, you know, the, and, and to me, that's a very simple thing. You know, if, if my people feel cared for, you know, and, and viewed as you know, human beings with, you know, respect and confidence and, and I value their input and their creativity um, and their health. Um, if I value that, that gives them the opportunity to turn around and, and value the guest in the same way. You know, it's, it's pretty hypocritical for people to treat their staff like crap or disregard, you know, the health of their staff and then expect them to turn around and, you know, smile more, honey, um, you know, it, it, to, to the guest, it, it becomes fake, it becomes inauthentic. So authenticity of hospitality starts with how y- you evolve as a team um, and what, what vision um, you have as, as your identity as a team. And that can get passed on to the guest in the form of, of, of like continued hospitality.
0: Yeah, sure. And you know, we call this the hospitality industry, which is, you know, a great reason why we're we're covering this topic today, too. Um, if we pull the camera back or the shot back a, a second here and look in maybe bigger picture, right? Um, you spoke about how the way you act or the way, you know, bar operators act um, – is reflected through their staff and then the way that they will have interactions with guests. So that's kind of a a very immediate consequence of, of maybe your behavior as a person in charge. What about though, like in the grander scheme of things? So say you're a younger bartender and you come up a certain way or you're taught or treated a certain way because that's the, I don't know, the environment of that bar or maybe it's a kitchen too, right? Like to what extent in your experience does that then continue as, as a cycle into other bars and then maybe when that bartender who's younger gets to the position where they're running a team kind of perpetuates that behavior? Is that something that you've noticed? Because that's certainly something that I felt when I used to work in kitchens. You kind of learn a way to do things and then you would continue those practices.
1: Yeah, you know, and one, one of the many things that I believe excuse me, our industry – can work hard to correct. Um, I think we're in the active correction zone now. Um we haven't had adequate training through ranks. You know, we've all heard the stories or maybe even experienced the the story of oh, you know, you're, you're you're a great server. Do you want to be a bartender or you're a great bartender. Do you want to be the manager? And at no point did did you get the training to do that next thing. So it's an industry of kind of faking it till you make it, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes learning bad habits, sometimes, un- you know, learning things, learning how not to do things. Um, we, we just we don't really have a structural training ground um, for people to move up. Um, so it just kind of become people kind of get thrown into these roles that they're, they're not qualified to do um, or they've just learned all the, the wrong ways of doing things. And they don't necessarily know that they're doing them incorrectly. It's just how they've always seen them done. And it, it just it creates a, a very you know, a um, not efficient way of, of growing an industry when it comes to growing talent and growing help.
0: Do you think that's also maybe just a symptom? And again, I don't want any of this to come across as a, as a negative outlook at the the industry itself or the profession. I'm truly, this is coming from a place where I've said this to you before when we've spoken, you know, for separate things, like I'm very inspired by the way that you talk about this topic. So, you know, I think it's a good moment for us to address some of these topics and, and and examine some of these aspects of the industry. Um do you think that's just a symptom of maybe the the the, the very dynamic way in, in which, you know, people move from job to job or location to location, or also maybe the the way that this has often been viewed as a vocation versus a profession and a career?
1: Oh oh for sure. You know and and i think i mean there's there's so many different business models in our industry and you know and and i i always try to be careful i'm not trying to say that one that there's there's an, any of them are evil or um but they do they do have um, an effect on the way that our industry is viewed through the public like so for example i mean you have mom and pop shops kind of like mine that 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 need to make money i mean they actually are self-sufficient they're sustainably profitable individually separated and they need to operate as Individually profitable businesses, um, not only for the business itself, but for investors and for staff, you know, Um, it it, in a lot of other situations, you know, you have maybe a restaurant group that owns 10 different places. And, you know, this little bar over here is their star the little gem star you know, pride and joy. But the truth is behind the curtain, it bleeds out and it's being sustained by these other places. And they can do all these amazing things because it's got this padding of these other places. You know, corporate chains are kind of the same way. They have a lot more money to move around. You know, some places don't need to make money at all. They're, they're hobby projects. You know, it's the people don't care how much it bleeds out because they want to be able to walk in and brag and and say, I own this place. Um, and that's their prerogative to do that, too. Um, you know, there's so there's no right or wrong, but what I think has happened over the years is, for many reasons, um, guests have been calibrated to price points that aren't necessarily reflective of what the business needs to make. Or, you know, a, a business that needs to make money versus a business that doesn't need to make money clearly can't thrive on the same price point. You know, so the, the guest gets a, a perception of like, well, I don't understand why is why is my experience over here this and my experience over here that? And it's because well, that one needs to make money, this one doesn't, and. Mm-hmm. So we're, so we're, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, You know, we've also been an industry that has survived on wage theft for a really long time. You know, Mm -hmm. when you, when you can pay your help, you know, $3 an hour um, because they're being um, supplemented by, by tip income, you know, again, that they, they could supplement price points because they weren't paying the full price. There's a reckoning coming that price points are starting to go up because they're starting to reflect people actually having to pay people a livable wage and that's a good thing but it's going to it's it's going to create some major uh, in my opinion um, kind of resettling in the industry uh, the public is simply going to have to get used to a price point that's real and it's going to be um it's going to be there's going to be some growing pains um and and on the flip side you know actually you know I'm am going to stop there. Well, we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, mm-hmm. we'll probably get into some more things later. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That that's so great that you bring that up because it's, it, it I've often held that opinion, you know, again, coming as a a former chef here, I've often held that opinion when it comes to dining out too, that simply guests have an unrealistic expectation of how much they have to pay for things um, in order for everyone to be fairly compensated and fairly treated. And, I, I, I don't know how you turn that massive oil tanker of an industry and a mindset around, right? Like, if suddenly the burger that you used to go out and pay 20 bucks for that came with fries, then the next week costs $30, 35 so that everyone is being properly compensated, but the burger and the fries don't change, then it, it it's going to be shocking for a lot of people. and you know, I don't have the answer as to how we do that. And, and, and folks there, you know, listeners can make their own analogies, you know, for a similar one for the, you know, cocktails and drinks and being in bars. But I do find it interesting because at this moment, some folks might be thinking, well, you know, how does wage come into the idea of philosophy and what we're talking about today? But I also see this as being like, if we don't treat this as a profession if we treat it as a vocation or something right like you've told me about this before then suddenly people leave without notice or they they don't turn up for a shift or they have a couple of drinks on the shift because it's like well this isn't a proper you know quote unquote proper job i'm not getting the healthcare that some of my you know some of my friends are getting in other professions or i'm not being properly compensated my my wages are being propped up by tips so that then bleeds into the service a few steps down the line does it not is it is that the way you might describe that
1: i mean absolutely and i, and I think that's great that you brought that up because that was kind of flip side that i was about to go into a little bit that there is a there is a dialectic here there is a you know as you know we hold ourselves more accountable as owners and managers to provide better structure, better opportunity for people to make money. You know, um, that's something that goes into every one of my business plans front and center is, you know, how much money is the staff going to be able to make here? You know, I, I, I'm not irreverent of that. You know, I don't just put together a business plan and think, Oh man, we might need 10 servers on whatever. We'll just cut some of them loose. If it's slow. No, those are human beings. They have bills to pay. They have families, you know, so every business plan front and center needs to start by considering it's the ability of the plan to make money. And going back to your point about as price points creep up one in my, again, in my opinion, one of the things that we're going to start seeing to happen is places are, you know, are going to start competing more heavily on a more broad spectrum of things. You know, it's not just what's on your plate or in your glass. It's the service, it's the cleanliness, it's the friendliness, it's the knowledge, and that will require a full skill set as as more and more places close because there's just not going to be a competition ground they're not the, the really cheap places aren't going to be able to afford to stay in business so you're going to see a lot of those types of places close and as the competition pool for jobs gets greater only the best people that take themselves seriously as professionals in our industry are really going to have a long-term viable career path in it so yes it's on our side of the equation it's our job to Create business plans that ha- allow people to make you know a a, a living commensurate with with what the effort that they're putting in the flip side is the employees also have to start holding themselves accountable um, the competition is going to get more fierce for places to work you know th- th- I think the days of being able to quit your job on a dime and the next day have a job somewhere else are, are getting are getting leaner you know um, we're starting to pay more attention hiring you know mm-hmm. when, I, when I see people that have worked eight jobs in the past year and a half, you know, that says something to me, like, you know, you know, do they they work eight horrible places? Or are they just the type of person that when they get bored with something, they move on. And that's something that we can't take a liability on anymore.
0: Yeah, totally. And and I think really that also bleeds into this conversation you're you're speaking about or maybe alluding to, which is like creating a company culture whether you're a mom and pop shop or whether you're part of a, a you know a greater bar or restaurant group that maybe has less um, pressure to to hit certain financial goals, but like it's very hard to create a good company culture when the nature of the workforce is very transient, and people are coming and going, and and you don't have maybe some of those stalwarts there in your business that maintain and set examples, right?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, it's a. You know, I, I keep saying it's, it's almost like our industry needs relationship therapy. You know, we've ended up in that <laughs> tip for tat mode of like, well, you did this, well, you did that, and and you know, and that's kind of where we are as a culture in our industry where. You know, I, I do think it's the job of the businesses, because, you know, if you look at us, there's a little bit of asymmetry, there's clearly asymmetry of power there. It's our job to put our foot forward first and start making the corrections we need to make. And then it's also important for, you know, I, I hear a lot of talk about unions, and I have some unpopular opinions about unions in our industry, and I know that people don't want to hear this, but, you know, I, I think I think there's a, a huge Achilles tendon in our industry is that People don't, for the most part, need to invest anything in themselves to get in. There's no barrier to entry. Um, it's the wild west. I mean, you can start a, a serving job and make you know six dollars on a lunch shift at you know a, a corporate, you know brunch chain, or you can walk out with five hundred dollars a night at a you know um, a established, revered you know cocktail or award winning you know restaurant program, mm-hmm. and. As a result of not having to put a single dime into yourself, no—I mean, you didn't have to spend money on a degree. You didn't have to buy tools. I mean, most most tradespeople have to buy tools. You know, I mean, they have to show up to the job site every day with an investment in themselves. You know, whether it's clothes or wardrobe or your education or your tools. And there's something, and and I'm not saying I have this all thought through, but I spent a lot of time thinking about it. About when you're not invested in yourself some of that transiency of, of, of employment, I think comes from just, I can quit when I get bored. There's no, I have no skin in the game. And so how as an industry do we start creating what is skin in the game, whether it's opportunities for ownership, you know, or required training, you know, it's like, I think there is something to be said about, you know, yeah, if you join a union, you're an apprentice for X amount of time because during that time you're not even an asset to the company. You're a liability, you're slowing us down. You're not mm-hmm. doing things properly. Your work needs to be checked over. It requires another person on shift to train you. you know, so why do you think you should be able to m- march in and make what the more established people who adequately represent the brand and the skill set and the trade make? So I think that there's this flip-flop of, of, of you know, um, union talk that needs to acknowledge, yeah, there's a, there's a disparity of talent in our industry And the, 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 those, those masters do deserve to make a little more, in my opinion, you know, I mean, they spent more time perfecting their craft and there's, you know, so, so I think that there's something coming into play about formal training, um, Mm -hmm. in in our industry, requisite formal training that requires an investment in yourself. And I think that might kind of set some of the things in the right direction from that end of the equation.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and also just, Speaking purely from maybe experiences I've had as a guest here in New York, um, certain bars, um, some still around, some sadly not, where I happen to know for a fact that there, there there's a very definite kind of um, training program when it comes to learning specs, but also being able to properly execute a, a, a whole manual of drinks to a certain standard before someone might be able to get that opportunity to kind of stand behind the bar or whatnot like I, I've been to a couple of places where I know that to be true and and there definitely seems to be a very kind of coherent identity for the entire staff in the bar and once again that really does then lead into what we would consider good service and and proper hospitality at least from the the guest point of view.
1: Absolutely, you know, and we're right now we're working on tightening some of our, our hiring practices because we've also noticed that, you know, the burden of that falls on us to be better at hiring, more transparent about, you know, what the job is. I think sometimes, you know, I, I also get really um, fascinated by the concept of, you know, um, projection that that our entire kind of economy, you know, leans on. So, for example, when when you ask a young person, you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up, and they say a doctor how do you know if you want to be a doctor, if you've never been a doctor, yeah. all you have, like all you have is your idea of what it's like to be the thing, right? So there's this gap of, there's this experiential gap. So you're just guessing, you know, um, one of my friends has a great quote Um, uh, it, it's a uh, hiring is guessing firing is knowing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, which I, I had never heard that before. I don't know if it's his or, but he says it a lot. Um, and it's, that's hundred percent true. You know, I mean, just like us, we're, you know, even if the person seems so ecstatic to work for us, you know, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is my dream job. And then two months later, they're like, you know, oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, you know, they're they're long shifts or maybe it's just not really the pizzazz that they were expecting. It's it's more introverted. It's more quaint. It's not for everybody, you know. Um, So we have to get better at hiring and, and giving job descriptions that are more accurate to kind of get past the start, you know, kind of the, the starstruckness of like, Oh yeah, I want to work there. It sounds really fun. Mm-hmm. It's like, it is fun, but that will wear off. Mm-hmm. You know, that newness will wear off just like anywhere else. You know, we are, we, you know, we, we want to create a great team. Um, but, but we're not going to be, you know, delusional and say, it's going to be this Disneyland place to work for your entire life. I mean, I, sometimes when I walk in, I have to remind myself that if these places are little special places. I mean, sometimes I get bored there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think we're so right now we're working on some better hiring strategies that help prevent, you know, that, that, that focus on retention um because we're like, man, what is it? It's, it's I mean, it's 33 hours a week that seems like nothing to me. It's 311 hour shifts. It's full considered full time. You have four nights a week off. The money's great, you know, why are people coming and going as as nonchalantly? Um and I think part of it just has to do with, you know, being realistic about where people are in their lives. And again, kind of going back to hospitality, we have to be reasonable about you know, the, the, the younger people that we can't expect them to know where they want to be in six months, let alone five years, you know? Yeah. So, how do we have real conversations in the hiring process that are as transparent as we can be about what to expect to help them, you know, uh, make a better decision about whether working in, in, our, in our, uh, our place is something that it's a good fit for them?
0: Yeah, definitely. So obviously, up until this point, for the majority of the things we've been speaking about are, are kind of inward facing, looking at, you know, maybe your own staff or, or, or teams here too. Um, what about, though, the guest side of things and and that aspect of hospitality? Um, wh- where does that come into play? And also, can you highlight maybe certain things that you might consider the main pillars for you personally and also in your bar programs?
1: Um- and this kind of goes back to that etymology of service versus hospitality. You know, our industry went down this really terrible path, in my opinion, of, you know, servile, servant, servitude. You know, yes, sir, the guest is, you know, the, the, you know, we probably talked before the famous, you know, Danny Meyer quote of, you know, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? And what most people don't take into account is the silent antecedent that is at the beginning of that concept, which is within the confines of our brand, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? Having strong brand autonomy gives you the power over your space. You know, here's what we are, here's what we do, here's what we don't do, here's who we're here for, here's who we're not here for. If you fall within those specs, absolutely. You know, we're we're, we're going to work, we're going to bend over backwards to make your experience amazing. But if our space just isn't for you, I'm never offended by that. I'm not so arrogant as to believe that we have the space, the one size fits all, amazing for everybody. Some people are going to come into our space and they're going to get no additional perception of value out of the things we offer. At which point you're right. Our price points are a waste of money for you. Um, you know, you know, and so, you know, getting to talk with guests about, you know, we don't have to be for everybody. Inclusivity, by the way, when I say the word inclusivity, I mean, you know, we are, we, all the people are welcome. What is not, what we are not including is people who tend to be exclusive in their thinking. So it's, we're pretty well known for not allowing Trump wear in the bar, not allowing hateful, you know, um, hateful words, hateful speech, hurtful speech. You know, being respectful of um, everyone's, you know, um, personal, you know, autonomy and you know, gender and sexuality expression. You know, like that. That is, you know, we're just we just try to make an inclusive space and a safe space in that way. And if anybody threatens that, that's where that's where the parameters of our brand is. If anyone threatens that, they are the ones who are excluded from our spaces. You know, mm-hmm. no, no, no human by the nature of being them. You know, just a person is excluded from our spaces, but you will exclude yourself from our space if you infringe on it being a safe, inclusive atmosphere for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and getting the whole guests, you know, a- accountable for that, um, I think is a real corner that we, you know, people are like, oh, you shouldn't talk politics in the bar. I'm like, I don't believe I talk politics in the bar. I talk human rights issues in our bars. You know, politics should be about the ways to get there. We should all agree on what the end result should be. We should all agree that every, pe- every person has equal rights, you know, in our country, um, we might disagree on how to get there. That, To me, that's politics. But we've blurred the line of, of politics and human rights. And so when we talk human rights issues, people sometimes are like, oh, you're talking politics in a bar. I'm like, I don't, I don't think we are. I yeah. think we're just establishing a, a common ground.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more there. And also another point you, you know, mentioned earlier when it comes to kind of service and, and things, which to my mind, also relates to how much we pay as guests for things too. I think the five most damaging words that were ever uttered that, you know, that impacted the hospitality industry have been, the customer is always right. I mean, I think that 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 mindset and that motto and the fact that very prominent people in the industry have kind of run with that idea, I think the 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 fallout from that has just gotten us to this position that we've spoken about where, you know, Ultimately, that's at the cost and expense of, of, of real people and real people entering this industry and perhaps maybe leaving very fast because they rightfully didn't like what they came across.
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, I, and I, you know, I came up through the trenches of, you know, I mean, I started bartending in 97, uh, 90, or January 98. And I have worked at some of the best places and some of the worst places and experienced Atrocious things, mm-hmm. seen atrocious things, and you know, I, absolutely, you know, and I, and I try to remind myself that you know one of the reasons we opened the saloon is I, I'm a little fascinated by the history of the saloon being kind of ground zero for hospitality in our country, you know, because it was one of the first four buildings built in any you know town, if you will, was you know the the, the general store, you know, the tavern. You know the the jail and the hotel slash brothel. You know, like that was that was kind of the the pillars of the community, Mm -hmm. Um, and and so they were gathering spaces. They were places that people shared ideas and came across people that were different than them. You know, we in creating these little you know comfort zones, kind of like in the same way that we've done politically. You know, you get in your little bubble and you go to your you know your little bar down the street and you never and you never branch out. That's part of the problem is that you know I like to create spaces that that are more broadly inclusive because I do want people to come across people that are different than them and realize that, you know, those people aren't scary, you know, like how, how do we start repairing You know, maybe, maybe hospitality can be a repair zone, you know, for conversation, you know, mm-hmm. where if you just realize that just because this person seems, seems so much different than you are you know, in certain parts of your life at the end of the day, we all have the same wants and needs as human beings, you know, um, uh, if we can just start bridging that gap with communal spaces, mm-hmm. um, that provide a safe space to do that maybe that's that's part of the role that, that hospitality can play
0: i love that idea of the saloon maybe being you know yeah. like the fourth building that goes up in, in in a new settlement anywhere right or we're breaking ground on starting a new village a new town whatever and the saloon becomes the that very early place because it is as we were all reminded of especially on the guest side right during the pandemic this this iconic third space and i think something a lot of people realized was that we don't go to bars simply to get drunk because we can buy alcohol and we do that at home. We don't also go to bars or we also don't go to bars purely to get mixed drinks that we might not know how to make because a lot of people set off on that journey during the pandemic. Here at Vinepair, we saw it in terms of the interest in our articles and podcasts and things, people teaching themselves how to make a martini, how to make a Negroni. Um, So you can do that at home, maybe not to the standard of a bar, but you can do it. So it is that other intangible sense of community, third place, right? And and through that lens, therefore, again, it kind of comes back to this topic of how much we pay for drinks. Like, you actually can't put a price on that.
1: Right. Um, and, and that's where, you know, going back that, that total picture of hospitality that we need to be held accountable to give because the perception of value for the guest, I mean, I, this, is kind of, and this is where, you know, I, I get to be the mean mom sometimes where uh, of course, of course, of course. You know, I mean, all, all people and, and employees. You know, I want I want all the staff members to be treated as people with with, with respect and and concern. Um, however, the flip side of that is, when you come to represent my home, because that's you know, if you're one, if you're on staff for us and you represent my home, you are representing my home's relationship with the guest, and you don't have the right to show up with your shitty attitude and your, um, you know. Your lack of your lack of wanting to develop a skill set, you know, like, oh, I mean, it's like I have watched more hospitality employees in our industry do brand damage to the place that they work because of either the lack of training, you know everything trickles up. If something is happening under my roof, it is my fault. you know, I didn't train somebody, I didn't establish standards. you know, but that said, they're, they're, the other thing that has the flip side that has to go away is an entitlement to show up and behave however you want. I mean, it's like like I said that conduit moves in both directions. You know, we show staff a certain level of hospitality, but then we get to hold them accountable to show that same hospitality to guests. And we have to provide them with the skills and tools to do that. And so, because the the big picture of of price perception of value is the entire experience. It's everything from the welcome at the door the holding the door for someone as they walk out and saying thank you, the cleanliness they experienced while they were there, the kindness they experienced, the uh, the knowledge of you know the the products, um, you know the the obvious care to get someone you know an or to give someone an experience that that they that they will enjoy, because ultimately we're we're curating a space for memories, you know. Like, I don't I don't I don't think mm-hmm. people left their house to see me. I think they left their house to have memories with their friends. We're very lucky they chose us as the backdrop. You know, we're the green screen. You know, <laughs> um, how do we curate the green screen for their experience? You know, within within the confines of our brand. Yeah. You know, um, how do we give them a reliable backdrop for their memories every time? And you know, that's that's what we strive for. And, and that, again, when, when you go when you blow past that, is when it starts to become theater. When you're like, you know. Mm-hmm. This is what we are. Come see us, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and
0: yeah, if you will allow me to maybe uh, stretch this analogy just a little bit further, the, the home analogy there too. Another thing that I was thinking about is if you have, again, like a dinner party and or if you attend one and one of the guests simply won't stop talking about themselves or is kind of hogging the conversation – That, again, is not a a position or, you know, a situation that I want to find myself in again. And that speaks to maybe that idea of where you're getting into theater and, you know, maybe egos start to come into play at the bar too there, right? Like that, that other aspect of the overlaps with hospitality that you spoke about.
1: Right. You know, yeah, I think that there's this really great, you know, kind of, I mentioned the word dialectic before, kind of dance that goes on where, you know, when people ask a question, you know, we get you know, for example, one of our spaces is in a really historic building. Actually, a couple of them are. So we get questions about you know what was the building before, and and you want to meet people with the polite response that that you know it feeds what they're looking for but doesn't go overboard you know if if they say you know what was this building originally and i say well you know originally the building was owned and blah blah, blah and i just keep droning on and on and on and pretty soon it's like look all they wanted to know like hey it was a pie factory you know the, build, the building was built around 1900 and, and it was originally a pie factory and then if they want to ask more you know if, if i have satiated you know the the information that they wanted or their, their inquiry like they they'll stop you know um, so I think just, you know, reading dialogue, interpersonal communication skills, you know, looking for how in-depth of an answer they're looking for, giving them the answer, they're, you know, answering questions with the opportunity to continue to ask questions and continue the dialogue, but also an opportunity for them to say that that's enough, you know, that's all I wanted, thank you, you know, um, without us like you said, just monopolizing and droning over their evening for the next hour and a half about stuff they didn't want to know.
0: (laughs) And Jill, you know, one thing you brought up there, and I love that you say it too, this hospitality being a dance. Um, There's another aspect of this that we, that you've touched upon, but I think maybe deserves further exploration, which is that guests are also accountable in this situation, right? Like we've spoken about how, every single member on, on, on a team on a bar team needs to be accountable for their actions on on a daily basis, whatever, or just in in terms of how they're pushing the hospitality industry forward. But that comes down to guests too, being respectful human beings, but also again, not to belabor the point, but that whole idea of, you know, how much a, a good hospitality experience is actually worth, you know, out of their pocket. And yeah, I think guests play a role in this too.
1: Oh, you're one hundred percent you know and how how you allow guests to maybe interfere not just with your staff um, but but also on other guests' experience you know and depending on what type of experience you're looking to provide, you know are all of our concepts are have nuanced differences, and you know one is more of a quiet conversational atmosphere we just we don't really allow mingling you know if if a, a group comes in and you know we, we we try to read it you know really well, obviously it's an adult room adult space, and people can you know join groups if they want but it's not really setting out to be a mingles bar. So if a group of people come out and they look like they're content enjoying their evening and someone wanders over and seems to be, you know, maybe monopolizing their night or taking their time away from their in, intended um, agenda for the evening, we'll just politely read, redirect that person. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, everything from holding guests accountable for how they treat, you know, the the, the, the employees, also how they treat other guests. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of room for improvement and a lot of room to increase the perception of value in a space, you know, by taking a more holistic approach to hospitality.
0: Here's another aspect to this conversation that I I certainly don't have the answer for. And I'm really keen to hear your opinion or your take on this. And we keep talking about guests here and we're using this analogy or or direct reference of, of, of this space being like a house, right? In some ways, that does ignore the fact that ultimately, at the end of the experience, a financial transaction takes place, right? So, like, I definitely think that calling people guests or patrons versus customers is a more respectful way to think about and serve people. But where's the balance there? Because a guest to your house hopefully you're not going to charge them a cover <laughs> fee, you know, for coming over for dinner. Right. So However, how do you yeah, find yeah. the balance there?
1: That's a really good question. Um, you know, and I guess that's where there is a, there's a trust factor right between, you know, the, the, the guest that's coming in and it, and it is transactional 100%. Um, but, but they are seeking a specific experience that they are paying for. One of the things I always, I tell people when we're training them, you know, and everything you do that devalues their experience is stealing from them because they are paying at the end of the day. You know, if if I you know wine service for example, you know if I don't know how to give proper wine service and I'm you know most of the the cost of that bottle of wine is you know in the the labor and the markup you know I, I, of of the presentation you know getting able to being able to enjoy um, someone else doing that for you and if you botch that you know they don't get to opt out of the, the service portion of their tab you know they don't get to so you know, if, if you if you mess something up or, or give really terrible service that cost of service is, is built into the price point um, you know if your atmosphere is not clean you know they don't get to say hey can you knock a few dollars off my tab because this place is filthy mm-hmm. so it's I think it's where this sort of accountability comes in where they can you build you establish the trust with the guests that come in come in that they know what they're paying for and that that's a full spectrum experience and anything that we do that devalues that in my opinion is is theft to them in that transaction.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And it sounds like as well maybe that maybe that space that difference between a customer and a guest maybe the difference right there is this very notion of hospitality. Right, it's 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 what sets a bar or a restaurant apart from me ordering takeout or me ordering food and drinks at an iPad or even a vending machine, right? The, the, the thing that distinguishes you from being a customer and a guest is is the service and it's the hospitality. So maybe that there is the answer to that question.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it, it is a very interesting question because there is, you know, and, and, and I do think there is a wedge there that's maybe where historically, you know, I'm the paying customer, I'm always right. You know, maybe that's where that, started to sneak in where the one paying, it became this one directional thing, you know, where I'm paying. So you owe me, you know, there's a reciprocation there. And I guess maybe, you know, de- defining that transaction, you know, you know, establishing very clear expectations, you know, for price points is somewhere where that definition of hospitality creeps in for sure. mm mm-hmm.
0: I forget who it was, so so apologies to the to, to the wonderful guest who who left this you know impression in my mind. and I can't remember exactly what episode it was, but someone highlighted uh, advice that they'd been given. I think it was by the late Gaz Regan, mentioning that um, when you go to a bar, the drinks are free; you're paying for everything else. And I think that's also maybe very relevant to this conversation that we're talking about here. Like, clearly, they're not free that's the thing that gives the whole experience value and that's what we're talking about today
1: yeah for sure um you know like i said before there's a um we we work really hard to provide a lot of added value um to our our experience but some people you know some people just not into that you know some people some people don't care that you know there's oh there's a hand cut ice cube you know in your drink Mm -hmm. and and if, if people don't care about that then you know then they they shouldn't be at our place because you know honestly it's they're getting charged for things they don't care about you know um you know, there's, I think everybody has to find their kind of comfort zone, um, where, you know, their, their comfort third space, you know, where, where they, uh, and, and there's a range, you know, some people have, you know, have, some people just want to be at a kind of a, a loud, you know, corner dive bar because that's where, like, that's where they feel at home. And it's kind of like the neighborhood cheers and what they get out of that is, you know, is comfortable for the price point commensurate with the price point that they're paying and, you know, I think that's why there's, there's such a great opportunity because there's a wide range of what people are looking for when they go out in an experience, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: You know, Jill, th- this conversation has been very uh, far-reaching. Uh, I'm confident in the fact that everything we have spoken about does fall under the umbrella today here of hospitality, but it's taken us in some very interesting directions. And as always, when speaking with yourself, um, I- I'm sitting here kind of very inspired by what you have to say. Um, I was wondering if you do have any other thoughts here on hospitality or aspects of it that we haven't covered uh, during this conversation.
1: Mm, you know, um, yeah, I think every, every day I, the, the things that play over and over my head are a lot of the things that we talked about today already. Um, and just, you know, where, where do we go from here? You know, where, where does our industry between the pandemic and some of the recalibration that started to happen there with, you know, uh, um, recognizing, you know, the, the, the wage theft that has been historically accepted. Um, but then this also wide range, you know, people talk about getting rid of tips. It it, it doesn't, it doesn't work for every model. You know, I don't know that there's a one size fits all, you know, normative assignment of how everybody should be operating. You know, I think that there's, there's room to grow and improve and learn and evolve. Um, and if you keep hospitality, I guess, between you and your staff and the staff and the guests. As this core, like I said, conduit, it helps as a guidepost. I mean, absolutely, to design business models that are more sustainable and that are more, um, I guess, able to be consistent with their hospitality experience. You know, everything from the price point lining up to you know, staff being able to make a livable wage, um, the guest, you know, feeling welcome. Um, I, I'm that's that's kind of where I'm, I'm. I'm excited about the, the new horizon. I think that there's a lot of things coming that are going to challenge our industry. But I firmly believe it's going to make it they're going to make it better.
0: Yeah. And and I think that, you know, coming out of the pandemic and also everything we've discussed today, too, it's just it shows you how much all of these things are linked in, in the knock on effect. Right. Whether it's, you know, owner, operator, staff or guests, like every single thing it's a cycle, and um, only when you know all of those things are aligned can can everyone move forward together and hopefully that 's something we 're going to see I'm, I'm glad that you have um, i'm glad that you're excited about it and hopeful about that too, because you know if folks like yourself are who are leading the industry right now then then I feel confident about the future here
1: yeah absolutely um, you know we've talked before there I think there's a lot of opportunity and also you know, i don 't want to segue into a whole other topic, but, you know, secondary and tertiary markets um, are... There, there, there is a lot of opportunity in hospitality. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's it's one of the few things you can't outsource. I remember thinking, you know, uh, if, if you, uh, you want to go out to eat, you know, like, we can't outsource hospitality. Like, no one's, you know... Well, very, I should say very few people are going out to eat, you know, overseas. You know, the, the hospitality has to happen at home. It has to happen in your community. And so it will never there will never not be a demand for hospitality experiences and hospitality professionals. Um, and that's something that I think we can, we can, you know, start looking at this as a, as a career path because of that, it will always be in demand.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, well, wonderful thoughts there for us today. And yeah, that, that's a secondary tertiary market. I think we may, actually, I don't think we, we covered it during the last episode. I think we were chatting about it ourselves together afterwards, but, uh, I think that's another fascinating one, probably for us to get into in another episode because yeah, yeah. a lot to unpack there. And we'll just leave that as a little, a little teaser right there, a little morsel, of crumb for people. I don't know, absolutely, people listening. The next one, yeah, for the next one. Um, before we head off on our separate ways, though, uh, we do have five new questions for yourself, at least as a returning guest, uh, to finish the show. Uh, should we head into those? Let's do it. Fantastic. Question number one: What spirits category are you currently most excited about?
1: Um, I play. I, I, I stay pretty consistently loyal to uh, if I'm if I'm myself drinking spirits. Um, you know, I like the smoky things, so the Isla Scotches and the uh, and the mezcal's. Um, those are always kind of my my go to if I can get somebody who drinks those. Um, I have fun doing a lot of riffs on classics with those.
0: Nice and, and deeply contemplative um, sipping spirits there too, right? Yes, you know, yes. You can definitely get lost in a glass of good scotch or mezcal yeah. there. You know?
1: Right, right. And it, and it's nice because you can actually, it's, it's a category where, you know... I, Scotch for the longest time, I have a lot of really good friends who work in, in the scotch industry and they kind of openly admit that scotch stayed, you know, scotch stayed scotch for a long time. It was like, you know, we're not getting to the cocktail game. I like scotch with my scotch. You know, it's a sophisticated thing. Mm-hmm. And they, I think some brands are realizing that there, you know, there is an opportunity to enter the market. And now that Mezcal is so popular, especially the Isla scotches, because you can kind of scoop people over that smokiness is that through line. You can be like, Hey, if you like this, you should try this. So you can kind of go, you can introduce those categories reciprocally, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and once again, bartenders and cocktails are just wonderful ambassadors for these categories and um, pioneers helping people discover them. Question number two, what was the last drink or cocktail you had that really wowed you?
1: So it's funny, I actually had to look this up today, so... um, I'm going to give a shout out. Um, I have a friend, a really good friend um, slash mentor uh, named Luke Edson in Omaha, Nebraska. And when you say Omaha, Nebraska and cocktails, even though our newest location is actually in Omaha, I will be reverent and say Luke Edson is synonymous with the word cocktail in Omaha. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, you know, it's, it's not very often, you know, even though we're, I work in this industry, I don't like think about drinks or food. Like there's very few dishes that I'm like, man, I think about that dish, you know, mm-hmm. Um but uh, I, Luke made me an apricot eau de vie cocktail um, with an apricot liqueur and a malic and citric acid solution thing. And it was delicious. Um, it was so good and so simple and so bright. And yeah, that was the... He uh, Luke's very good at taking simple things and making them like really memorable. And any
0: opportunity I or any any occasion where I see a, a, an eau de vie on the menu there, I'm like, I'm in. I'm taking yeah. It. <laughs> Question number three: What's one book you think that every alcohol and cocktail enthusiast should own a copy of? And this doesn't have to be a recipe book, by the way.
1: Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this because the ones I always go to, insofar as you know, I have different inspirations as a you know manager operator as opposed to you know a bartender. Um, I like to keep it simple with bartending. You know, if, if I'm just hand, if I, if somebody comes to me and says, "Where do I start? how do I start my collection?" I always kind of knee jerk toward Dale DeGroff's Craft of the Cocktail because it's not overwhelming. You know, I mean, you throw you know, there's some wonderful you know recipe books and cocktail that, that are more picture photo books that are gorgeous out there, but they become so overwhelming, and people have this idea like, "Oh my gosh, I have to memorize all of these." Like, no, hmm. there's there's six classic cocktail templates, and once you understand why those work. The next, the next phase is then you know once you realize you know what those are, you can go through now the, the Death and Co book or Southern Teague's book is wonderful, mm-hmm. um, and and you start to recognize like oh that's that's just an old fashioned or that's just a Negroni build with this switched out. It's like I mean you start to recognize the the, the structure. So getting to know the structures of those those, those classics, um, in an approachable way, I think is the most important. Um, one of my my favorite other books, kind of speaking of sustainability and just business is um, Yvonne Schwinnard's Let My People Go Surfing, mm-hmm. um, the development of the Patagonia brand ethos. And it, it was so inspiring. I think it changed my life.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. And if you want a, I don't know, maybe this is a bit of a topical, timely reference here for folks, but if you, if you want a story that, that's almost the antithesis to what we see playing out these days on Succession... Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to pay that book a visit. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, Penultimate question today if you could appear in one movie scene where alcohol plays a prominent role, which would it be and who would you like to play?
1: This is going to sound so cliche, but good Lord, can we please go back? Can we push rewind and fix the Vesper scene <laughs> so there's no more debate can can I just change can I be you know can I be um, you know I don't know whether it's the bartender or some version of James Bond and just Mm -hmm. order that drink stirred. Can we just do that? (laughs) Stirred as usual. Yeah, exactly. Um, As it should be. (laughs) Stirred as it should be, you know, Um, just, you know, like just, just go back and remove all of the, you know, it's so funny when, uh, when when that shows up in in a competition, you know, people are always like, should I shake it or stir it? You know, (laughs) um, yeah Um, yeah so yeah let's go back yeah yeah, let's fix
0: that nice yeah (laughs) setting yeah setting the record straight there for history rewriting history but i i do worry about uh that the headline writers out there and the you know the 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 easy tropes when it comes to (laughs) intro copy for articles but yeah i think i think we owe that to history to maybe rewrite (laughs) that one there absolutely all right then final question for you today jill which modern classic cocktail do you think is deserving of more recognition than it gets?
1: So one of my favorites, and it's funny because I'm gonna go a different direction. I just said mezcal and scotch are my go tos They are, mm-hmm. and it took me a while to get into gin. I'm not, I'm not a like a, a super like standard London dry fan. I'm one of those people that kind of get introduced to it the hard way, and it, for for years it was like very. was like Pine Sol. Mm-hmm. It was reminiscent of Pine Sol to me, but then of course you know you find better spirits and you graduate from college Um, um, and there's so many wonderful gins out there. One of my favorite summer cocktails is the Fitzgerald. Um, It is so easy. And what I like about it is it gives you this opportunity to play, you know, the potato head game where you're like just switching out the components. You know, you can switch out the gin. If you like a more standard London dry style, you can use that. If you want to, you know, experiment with a botanical, you know, something like uncle Val's it's, it's wonderful. Um, but then, traditionally, it's just so it's just uh, the gin, the lemon, the simple, the bitters, you know, it's basically a, a bee's knees, but with simple instead of honey, and then two dashes of, two or three dashes of, of normally Angostura bitters or, or an aromatic bitters. And that's the other component, that you can totally change the profile of this cocktail so easily by just bouncing with different bitters. Yeah, You know, you can, I mean, a, a, a lavender bee's knees is a, a very popular one, not bee's knees, a lavender, a, a Fitzgerald is one of my favorites. Um, they're very similar. Um, you know you being able to showcase how you can completely change the personality of a cocktail, even the garnish, you know, throwing a a rosemary garnish on a um, um, a Fitzgerald is a, a classic Fitzgerald is great. Um you can just it's such a simple classic. It's so clean mm-hmm. that making these these tiny changes allow you to kind of you know hone in on 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 what different components of the drink are doing, you know. So I think that's a fun one to play with on a summer menu.
0: Nice. And, um, you know, you're speaking to a gin convert and gin lover over here. So that's one that I have not revisited in quite some time and just pulled up those ingredients too while you're chatting and just looking at this. I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, weather's starting to get nice over here. Uh, This is a perfect, perfect cocktail for for this time of year.
1: Yeah, uh, they're wonderful. I I lean on them a lot. They're simple. And 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 the nice thing is most bars will have what it takes to make it, you know. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: So. Wonderful. Well, gin. Gin on the mind.
1: I've been called worse.
0: Gin on the mind. That is the uh, weekly signal at which we should wrap things up. We start Perfect. getting the guest Perfect. name wrong. Jill, thank you so much again for your time today and for chatting with us here on the Cocktail College podcast. Uh, this has been one of my favorite conversations of all time. Really, it's, it's always a pleasure. And so thank you very much for that.
1: Yeah, I, I would love to come on anytime you have an opportunity. I love our conversations. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks. Cheers.
1: Yeah, have a good day.
0: Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vine Pairs Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show, anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts whether that's apple spotify or stitcher and please tell your friends now for the credits cocktail college is recorded in new york city and produced by myself and darby seaside who also composed our awesome theme music just give that a listen folks I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Sharino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and
1: for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.